Hello. Hey, how are you doing today? Hey, I am doing okay. I'm a little groggy. We had about 10 middle schoolers here all day yesterday and on through the night. They decided to set up camp in the woods behind us, which was kind of funny because they didn't actually sleep. So they were loud all night long, sitting around the campfire and having a great time. But now they're just kind of lounging about at various areas of the house. And some of them are awake, some of them are not. And I'm a little groggy because I didn't get a lot of sleep. But it was super fun. And uh, my son just enjoyed having all of his friends over. So that's how I'm doing. That's awesome. Yeah. How are you? Even keel is the word that comes to mind. I am not great. I'm not bad. I'm just plugging along. Okay. Just sort of even keel, which is ironic because I wanted to call and talk about something that I normally do when I am not even keel, uh, which is taking a personal retreat. But nevertheless, I am even keel right now. Uh, so maybe this is a great time to think about this particular spiritual habit. Yeah. But I wanted to talk about just the experience of a personal retreat and and kind of the how-to, like how to set up a personal retreat. You just went on a personal retreat recently, and I'm curious what you learned about how to do this particular spiritual habit and why to do this particular spiritual habit. And I've been on uh, a couple of personal retreats as well. And so I just thought this would be a fascinating topic to have a conversation about. Yeah, I would love this conversation. In fact, I hope to learn from it because I have only ever taken a couple of spiritual retreats. And quite frankly, I was inspired to do so by your having taken spiritual retreats. So I would love to learn about doing this because I'll start off with a story about this current spiritual retreat to explain why I might not be the best one to set up a how-to. So I just tried to go on a spiritual retreat like last Monday. I was just going to spend the whole day up at an abbey, and I was going to pray, and I was going to read psalms, and I was going to just spend time reviewing my time in seminary and inquire of God, like, okay, show me what comes to the surface from my seminary training and my time there and what you did in me and all of these things. So that was the goal. But it was only going to be a one-day retreat, and I hadn't really set a date to do it. I knew that my family was busy on Mondays, and I have the Mondays off. So I knew I wanted to do it in the first nice Monday of like spring. So having an indefinite date was not great because then I could schedule all things, you know, all these other things. And I almost never, I almost didn't get a chance to go because I scheduled so many other things. And then the day came for me to actually go. And the night before I like started looking up, okay, well, what time do, does the restaurant open that I want to go to? Oh, it's closed on Mondays. Well, shoot. And oh, I forgot to cancel with my buddy and I, we were going to translate in the morning. How am I going to translate and still get to the Abbey in time to go to the mass? And so I almost canceled because of bad planning. And I felt like God was saying, no, you, you said we were going to spend this time together. Please show up. So I overcame those hurdles and, and still went uh, and had a great time, by the way. And it was very, very profitable. But 
that's not quite the how-to example. Sounds like you learned a ton of valuable lessons, though. Yeah, but the hard way, not the way that like you set yourself up as an example, like here, do what I did. <laughs> oh man, I think that's great though, because I, you know, we were talking offline yesterday and I referred to a saying that I, I use all the time, which is anything worth doing well is worth doing badly first. Yes. And I think personal retreats are a great example of this. It's worth doing well. But the only way to figure out what doing it well for yourself means is to try and see what you need to learn and do some things not well and make a mess of it and then do it better next time and it'll be great. Well, yeah, I agree. But even the language you're using is uh, indicates you have a, a perspective on doing this. You're saying, learn how to do this well for yourself. So is this just an individual thing? Is it not even uh, replicable? Is that a word? Well, whatever. Uh, so is that is it not something that like you can teach others to do? Are there no common principles? Or is this all just 100% you know, what you need in the moment and, and it's very self-guided? You know, I am really curious to explore the answer to this question by figuring out what is beneficial to you and what is beneficial to me and to see if there is overlap. Oh. Uh, I have this exact question. I know what works for me, but the fact that it works for me does not say anything about whether or not it is, I'm not sure this is a word, but you'll know what I mean, universalizable. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And my guess is that there are principles that we can draw that are universal, but the practices may be personal. That um, that may well be. Well, okay, so then tell me something about your experience with doing a personal retreat. Sure. So my experience actually starts off with a series of corporate retreats that I did. Corporate meaning in a group, not with an organization or business. When I was at my old church in Boston, every year I was allowed to go to a conference that the church paid for. And at some point, I said to my lead pastor, I have been to enough leadership conferences that they are all saying the exact same things, and I have no interest in going on a leadership conference this year. But There's this series of corporate retreats that train you in listening to each other well and being still before God and learning to go deep. And it costs the same amount as a conference, but I'd be away four different times instead of one time throughout the year. Is this something you're open to? And the lead pastor said, sure, yeah, go for it, do it. And so... I went on this series of four retreats with this group of people, and they were generally silent retreats, except for meals. I think breakfast and lunch were silent, and dinner we talked. And then we talked during the sessions, and the sessions were very carefully guided. They were my first experience of the power of listening to one another. Mm. Um, And it was this very carefully guided listening experience. But then the rest of it was very open. 
And there was a lot of space to just kind of encounter God in whatever way worked for you. And when I finished that year of retreats, I found myself so hungry for that same kind of experience that I have been going on private personal retreats ever since because that's the closest I can get to that experience. Mm. This is fascinating. So I don't I don't know that I would have called it a spiritual retreat, but I definitely took like a, a backpacking trip, a solo backpacking trip. And part of the aim was really just to be alone with God during that time. And so if I include that, and what is interesting, why I bring that up though, is that I often struggle between like, I would love to have somebody go on a backpacking trip with me, but they can't talk too much. Like I want company when I want company, but I also want long stretches of solitude and silence. So it's always like baffled me. How do I invite somebody to be with me half the time? Or find somebody that also wants the same experience is probably more like it. But I, I so I'm intrigued by this tension between having company and not having company. And I'd love to know your perspective. Like, should a personal retreat be you and God only? Or should you include other people? You know, I have loved both. But I have found the corporate retreats to be incredibly powerful, even more so than the private retreats. There is something incredibly powerful about going from a period of hours of silence into a gathering where there's just two, three, four other people where you are intentionally listening very, very carefully to what they have to say, or you know they are listening very carefully to what you have to say. That balance of silence and listening is incredibly powerful, I think. So I love private retreats, but there is something about that that is a level up, not just a lateral move in my experience when you add other folks. But it sounds like the experience you had was also highly structured, and so everybody knew what to expect in those corporate times. Do you think that made a difference? 100%. This would have to be everybody's on exactly the same page, ready for the exact same schedule, with the exact same desires for what they're looking for, meaning silence and listening, and I think that that would be essential so that it didn't end up too much chattering. There was specific time scheduled for specific conversations, and that was it. Hmm. Yeah, I think that that experience would be valuable. But it also raises another question for me, which is the balance between structure and flexibility. And that's something mm. I know that my spiritual director was trying to emphasize with me as I was thinking through this most recent spiritual retreat, I knew there were some things I wanted to accomplish. I knew I wanted to review my time in seminary. I didn't quite know how to do that because I didn't want to get bogged down in reading too many old papers or going through old files and stuff like that. And I also didn't know if I would have like internet access and that kind of stuff. 
And so I didn't want to get too bogged down with that. I wanted it to be very prayerful. And I knew I wanted to read some Psalms. I wanted to pray with the monks. But then after that, there was also a lot of like flexibility into my afternoon. We built in like four or five different things that I could do if I chose to. And I knew I was going to do certain things in the morning. And then the afternoon was very, very flexible, which was so great for me. Because in the afternoon, I ended up being really tired. I ended up like taking a nap under a tree. I read a fiction book. Mm. I read some Psalms. I took another nap under the tree. Like It was so restful and peaceful, largely because I didn't have a structured thing that I felt like I had to be doing. So what has your experience been between balancing structure and like directionality? Again, we're just making up words. I think that's a word. <laughs> so uh, between, you know, being structured and having some flexibility. Yeah, you know, and I tell me if I'm going off question here, but one of the balances that I think you hit on that's really powerful off is, question. I haven't said anything yet. <laughs> okay. Um <laughs> Um, you know, you hit on this balance that's not just structure and flexibility, but it's the doing something and being free to not do anything. One of the hard lessons for me, so I am a structure person and I am rigidly a structure person. My kids joke that I don't have to look at the clock to know what time it is um, <laughs> because I always have recently looked at the clock. I err on the side of being rigid in that regard. And so when I first tried to schedule my own personal retreat, I had so much plan. And, you know, you talked about how much planning is involved. Getting out of everyday life, every time I go on a personal retreat, both physically, mentally, and emotionally, getting out of everyday life is very hard. And not only have I found that I also need some of that open time, at least in my experience, I need that open time towards the beginning because I am not going to be able to flip a switch and go straight from whatever chaos is going on in my daily life to suddenly and magically I am still before God and like ascending to some sort of higher spiritual plane and really just reveling in the glories of the Lord or something. I <laughs> So in my ideal personal retreat, there are two nights that I sleep over wherever I'm going to be so that my middle day is completely clear from beginning to end. And the first night, I generally have no plan. I have a fiction book or a history book or something that is not particularly spiritual. And I am just decompressing. And that's my whole plan for that. So I love the way that you described this. You had some pockets of planned time and some pockets of here are some things I can do if I'm not sure what to do, but I don't have to do anything. I think that is exactly where I have landed with the one caveat that I tend to front load the open pockets and the toolbox of options for that time tends to not be very spiritual to start with. Yeah. I, I was starting to think about that and think if, if I know that I have a to-do list waiting for me, 
it's harder for me to rest. And so how do you mm -hmm. make the activities that you have structured not feel like a to-do list? That's a great question. Boy, I think you said exactly the right thing early on, 10 minutes ago or whatever, right? You said uh, when you were getting ready to bail on your spiritual retreat, you felt like God said, what was it again? Say that. What is it that you felt like God said? Yeah. I, hey, we planned to have this time together. Please show up. Yeah. I think the frame for a personal retreat can't be, this is a thing I need to do. Just like I think the frame for even my time with God on a regular basis really can't be, this is a thing I need to do. It needs to be either, this is a person I'm going to spend time with, or this is a gift God is giving me. Yes. And as long as I know it's a gift God is giving me, and I'm exploring the gift through these various activities, they are not a to-do list. Because the space is a gift, mm -hmm. right? To have a day, two days, whatever, to set aside just for God, not everyone has that privilege. Sure. Well, I really love the language you're using because it really hits home for me. That's exactly how I have felt going into these spiritual retreats, particularly the most recent one, because it really is a gift and it's an opportunity to go spend some time with God. You know, as I was trying to discern, okay, what, how is I going to use my time and, and mulling it over with my uh, spiritual director, it really felt, if I could put it this way, I don't, it's not a perfect correlation, but it's the best I've got. It really felt almost like planning an anniversary trip with my wife where it's just, mm. there's just kind of some excitement. There's kind of like a, hey, we get to spend this time together. How we how do we want to use it? Like, I don't want to plan every minute, but like, what do you want to do? And so it, it felt like that. It had that same tone, even if it wasn't the same experience. Well, and this ties in to what I think one of my biggest questions that I have about retreats in general, which is why make the sacrifice. What is it you wanted to get out of this moment? You know, you're using normal language in asking that question. So I'm not blaming you, but that language is loaded. It's loaded toward It is. It, yeah, so it's it implies that I need to get something out of this. I need to accomplish something. I need to feel at the end of the day like I checked a box or something. I don't know. I don't know what words to put in its place, but that strikes the wrong tone for me. What do I want to get out of it? Well, I mean, going back to the anniversary analogy, what do I want to get out of? Like, I just want to spend time with my wife on an anniversary trip. Like, I want to have fun. I want to connect. That's it. I want to connect. And that's like, if, if I have connected with God, that's it. We've accomplished our aims, if that's the words we want to use. That's what I want to get out of it. I just, connection. I really like that. And I, I love your redirecting of that question, because that's exactly what I was wrestling with as I was trying to figure out how to ask it. Because I don't think the end goal of a good personal retreat is something about you. Somehow, it has to be just a you and God moment, 
not a let me become out different than I started moment. It's not about growth. It's about God. Which ironically produces growth, but that's completely secondary. Well, this is the, you know, I think back to something when I was in college, my small group leader and director and now longtime friend Val said several times, and I've carried it with me for 20 years. She said, there's some things in life that are uh, like packing when you're uh, sailing a boat. When you're sailing in certain directions, a boat, in order to get where you're wanting to go, you have to go in a slightly different direction and you sort of zigzag towards it. But if you were to try to go straight towards the thing itself, you won't get it. Certain things are supposed to be secondary motivations or secondary directions in your life. And I think growth is one of them. You can't grow by trying to grow. You need to grow by trying to be with God. Otherwise, you will end up with a very egocentric type of growth, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And this is all a really good corrective for the way that I think. Like, I am a, let's grow, show me the scoreboard, I want to know that I succeeded and accomplished the goal kind of person. And one of the biggest challenges, even in something like a personal retreat is, I want to debrief it and give myself a grade. And that's the wrong approach. That's still that sort of task list kind of thinking. It is, but I would take it even a step further because I think there are times when in my relationship with God where I have spent time reading my Bible, praying, showing up. And at the end of showing up, I still don't feel anything. I took a, a spiritual retreat. I, there was a Christian camp about a half hour south of me, and they have like a little retreat house that you can go and stay in. You can just reserve and pay a cleaning fee. Like I think they even just do it on a donation basis, so you don't even have to pay. So I stayed there for like three nights or, or two nights and three days, and I, I did some hiking and I did some reading and maybe even some journaling. I don't remember. And I remember at the end of that, like I had enjoyed my time. There was nothing bad about it, but there was also nothing magical about it. I'm like, huh, yeah, okay, it's a thing I did. I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel super connected with God or super disconnected. I just like, eh, it just was. I don't think that that's any less valuable, but it certainly isn't going to show up on any scoreboard. Yeah. One of the powerful things perhaps about a spiritual retreat. For those of us who are in a church and ministry and Christian context like the one that you and I share, is that we are looking for an experience that provokes or causes something in me. And The fact that at the end, you're asking that question, which I also would be in that space, so no criticism intended, but the fact that you notice, huh, I didn't really feel anything, tells us something about what we were looking for. Mm. And it may be that a quiet, no-hype spiritual retreat 
is a really powerful detox from all of those things that are misdirected expectations. Yeah, I think so. I, you know, it's so funny. The, the, the Gospels don't really give us much of a window into Jesus's little personal retreats. It, Except it that says, they were always interrupted. Yeah, That's what well, we find out. Right. They, they did get frequently interrupted. But I wonder how many of them did not get interrupted. It, it, mm. I mean, there are, there are vague allusions to, he frequently went up on the mountain to pray. Oh, oh, That's a good okay. point. Like, so this was a habit he had. And that's it. We don't know what the experience was like. We just know he continued to do it. And, and that's all that the Gospels narrate. And in some way, it's all the Gospels can narrate. Nobody else was there. But I'm intrigued by that to just realize, regardless of how I might feel at the end of it, that's kind of not the point. Um, the point is to intentionally spend time uninterrupted as best you can with God. That's it. And, you know, I'm going to keep coming back to this anniversary trip analogy. It is good. There are a lot of times, even in an anniversary trip, that, you know, my wife and I aren't necessarily spending time together. There might be times where she's like, you know what, I'm going to take a long bath. And I'm like, well, that's great, because I want to read a really good book. And, you know, for an hour, like we're in separate spaces. That's fine. So if I sit and read a fiction book, or if I take a nap or something like that, I think that's those are okay elements to include. Mm. Yeah, the other thing I want to pick up on on this analogy of the anniversary trip, the value of it isn't even just in the fact that it happens once, but in the fact that each year you are marking time in your journey together. It doesn't look the same every year. It's not supposed to. And some years, everything is great. And some years, everything is not. And some years, your relationship is great. And some years, you may have to work a little bit harder at the relationship. But mm -hmm. it marks the time. And I think these sort of larger spiritual habits, like a spiritual retreat, is designed to mark the time. We are in a relationship, me and God. And when life is good, we are in a relationship. And when life is bad, we are in a relationship. And when I need to decompress, we are in a relationship. And when I'm hungry for him, we are in a relationship. You know, just doing things like this in some kind of rhythm removes the what am I going to get out of this piece by just saying, I do this because I do it, because it is part of being in the relationship. Yeah. I would add one thing to your marking time analogy, marking time together. Mm. It's, uh, we're not just, you know, setting up a monument to another year having gone by. We're in relationship still. So it's, uh, I'm showing up with you again, or still mm -hmm. is another way to say that. We are still together. And that that can imply a lot of things. It can imply like we've overcome a lot of things, or we are working through a lot of things, or what have you. But regardless, wherever we're at, I'm showing up. Oh, and I think this begins to answer some of your initial question at the beginning. Is this personal to you, or is it universal? If we hold on to this 
analogy or set of analogies, I think the answer is it's neither universal nor personal because it may be that even the way I mark time with God this year and the way I mark time with God in two years may be different. So it's not even that what works for me now might not work for me later. It's just that there are certain tools or practices that I can bring into a retreat that are helpful. For example, planning well in advance is a valuable principle that I suspect is required, both if you're going to take your spouse on a trip and if you want to go on a trip with God. I'll tell you, though, where the anniversary trip analogy breaks down is that a marriage is supposed to be one, you know, two people. But when we gave our lives to Christ, yes, we adopted a relationship with God, but we also were incorporated into a family of people who are also following Jesus. And so this corporateness is part of the Christian walk in a way that corporateness is not part of a marriage. And mm. so I think it opens up the door for these these more communal retreats that you've uh, been on in a way that like obviously the analogy would break down with a marriage so yeah in that sense it becomes more like our yours and my biannual rhythm of going on vacation with our families together oh, now in just a yes. couple of weeks we are going to meet in utah slash arizona and we have spent hours planning that trip and we will spend hours more planning that trip because planning a trip takes work and incorporating more people requires more work not less work and Mm. so i think broadening it out to a family vacation instead of an anniversary trip may capture a lot of the things that a corporate trip would need to be you know we initially talked about going to several different state parks, and then we reevaluated the group of people we had with us and thought, that sounds like a great plan, except for not with this group of people. <laughs> we, we need cooler, wetter options. Um, yes. And I, I think that same kind of thing may be true with gathering a group of people together for a corporate personal retreat. Yeah, I'm so glad we stumbled into these analogies because they really help to capture the heart and the excitement of a personal retreat uh, Mm. in really fun ways. Because I am personally very excited for our joint family vacation here in a few weeks. And I am personally not. Okay, fine. (laughs) You get to you get to do all the hot hikes. Then we'll go play on the lake. No, Uh, I'm kidding. I can't wait. Uh, I can't wait. Mm. So this has been a fun conversation. Uh, you know, for all of our listeners out there, we hope that if you've never done a personal retreat, that this is an inspiration to do that with somebody or without, depending on your needs in the moment. And, you know, keep showing up with your relationship with God, however that needs to happen. And uh, we would love for you guys to join us online, on Facebook, on Instagram. Tell us about your experience being out on a personal retreat, whether you're doing that now for the first time or whether you've done a hundred of them and want to show us what we missed. 
we would love to broaden out the conversation. So you can search for On the Fun with Josh on uh, social media accounts. And also, this is our Summer in the Psalms series. And so we hope you're joining along. We hope you're reading along. This has been a profitable experience for me personally, and I think for you also, Josh from Missouri. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So I would love to dive into our Psalms series and ask you, Josh from Missouri, what has struck you this week? Yeah, sure. I was really struck by Psalm 78, which is one of the longer Psalms we've read so far. And Psalm 78 is, generally speaking, one of these Psalms that is a recitation of all the wonderful things God has done for his people. He rescued them out of Egypt. He sent plagues to rescue them. He sent them water. He sent them quail. He sent them all sorts of great things. In the midst of all of those wonderful gifts, the people of God are continually unfaithful. And what struck me about Psalm 78 is as I was reading it, I resonated significantly with the people of God being unfaithful despite God's faithfulness. And I found myself thinking, I just need to be more faithful. Hmm. As if that was the concluding thought that the psalm was trying to get me to think. (laughs) You know, and what's interesting to me, so if I were writing this psalm, the last stanza would have been, so people of God, be more faithful because you can trust God's faithfulness. And there are plenty of places that the Psalms say that and that the Bible says that. And so I, I'm not saying that's an unchristian message or something, but it is not the message this Psalm ends with. Hmm. This Psalm ends with a celebration of the fact that God appointed David as king. The heart message that this psalm, I think, is trying to communicate is the people of God without the king are always going to be unfaithful. They need the king to keep them in check. And as we look at the history of God's people, David the king did not succeed in this, nor did anyone else in his family. And it leaves this vacuous hole that is so beautifully filled by Jesus, the King. And I love the fact that this psalm comes to not just try harder, but boy, you need the King. Mm -hmm. Because this is what you're going to be like all the time, unless the King intervenes in your life. And that was a much more hopeful ending than my try harder. Because I've tried harder a lot of times, and it doesn't help. Yeah, of course. And honestly, it ties in so well with this spiritual retreat idea. A spiritual retreat is not an excuse to try harder or to be more spiritual. A spiritual retreat is, I desperately need the king and let me get away with the king. Mm, Good point. I did not make that connection. But yes, that is very true. But what about you? What are your thoughts from the Psalms this week? Yeah, well... You know, the first, gosh, 70 psalms or so, 
a great majority of, of them seem to have the same kind of theme. I have all these enemies surrounding me. I've done nothing wrong. They speak lies and injustice, and they are wicked people. They are sent to devour me. And Yahweh, in you alone do I place my hope. Please come and rescue me. And occasionally, thank you, Yahweh, for rescuing me from these evil people. And I was appreciative of the time spent in the Psalms just the other day. I was meeting with somebody who had done nothing wrong and yet was being investigated by a governing body, mostly because somebody in authority got bent out of shape about I don't even know what. But it was clearly nothing that this individual did wrong. And this governing body couldn't even bring articulate charges against him. And so I was meeting with him, and and he was explaining what he's going through and the stress that it's caused and the frustration and all of these things. So at the end, I, I prayed for him, and I thought about the Psalms and thought, this is just unjust. This is very similar to many of the Psalms that we have read And the point is always the same. Yahweh, in you we trust. That's it. Mm. And I was appreciative of our time in the Psalms because I could pray that prayer, just casting all of our hope, all of our anticipation, all of our anxiety back to God and saying, you're our refuge. We trust in you. Nothing else matters. So that was it. It was just a cumulative thought from the Psalms. You are so right. This idea of trust, I am awed by how often that seems to be the end point of the conversation for the psalmists. Mm-hmm. It's just about trust. Trust in action. Yeah, yeah, right. I was struck also during that conversation, the difference between trust and entrusted. Uh, mm. You communicate trust by entrusting actual responsibility, actual agency to somebody else. Now, that comment was made in a different context, but still it's the same thing. I am entrusting to you, God, this situation. I'm turning it over to you. That is a very different thing than I just, I trust you. Uh, It is, as you said, trust in action. That's so good. Man, well, as we're getting ready to wrap up, are you ready for the uh, Witch Josh question for today? All right. Okay, go ahead. All right, here it is. Which Josh has been to the Taj Mahal? Oh, this is a fun one. Yeah, that is me, Josh from Oregon. I have been to the Taj Mahal. So when we were in our undergrad, I took a mission trip with our school to India, and we traveled around Northwest India, kind of almost near Pakistan, and uh, preached the gospel. And it was awesome. It was an amazing experience to have when you're like 20 years old, maybe even less. And one of the things that we did as a kind of a sidebar is we took the train over to uh, see the Taj Mahal. And once in a lifetime experience to be able to do that, it was wonderful. I I don't know that I have much to say about seeing the Taj Mahal, but I will say this. My mother chose that moment 
to invite my, I think, I don't know if Shelly and I were engaged or if we were just dating. Either way, my mom said, oh, this is a great time to have you over. Let's pull out all the baby pictures. He's on the other side of the world and he can't stop us. Uh, That's awesome. (laughs) Right? Uh, Yeah. So there's my, there's my India story. That's brilliant. So you were seeing the Taj Mahal and your eventual wife was seeing you in a diaper at six months old. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really honestly equivalent to seeing the Taj Mahal. Yeah. No, absolutely. They are clearly the same. (laughs) That's Uh, awesome. Yes, indeed. All right. Are we on for next week? Absolutely. I can't wait. I'll talk to you then. Okay. Bye. Bye.